Those of you who have children and you utilize our children's ministry, we run that through the first grade. You're most welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you whose children are remaining with us in the service, um, your children are most welcome here. And so uh, we love having them. We love that they are um, lear learning the rhythms of, of worship along with the rest of, of the church body. And just by way of reminder, there is a, uh, a worship guide that is available to them to be able to go through the rhythms of our uh, service together. We've been going for some time through uh, just paragraph by paragraph, the London Confession of Faith. And this morning, I wanted to read to you paragraph 7 of chapter 8. Paragraph 7 of chapter 8. And chapter 8 uh, concerns all things dealing with um, uh, Christ as mediator. It's a summary statement all throughout chapter 8 about Christ as mediator, taking into account the totality of Scripture. And so paragraph 7 says this, In his work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures, by each doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designated designation of the other nature. And uh, just by way of reminder, as God's church, we confess that Christ has two natures, one person, two natures. He's truly God, and He's truly man. But with that said, would you turn with me to the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and we are going to look again <clears throat> at the passage uh, that we, we uh, contemplated, thought through, spent time on last week, uh, particularly verses 27 to 33. I'm going to kind of focus in, though, on the, 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 the plain teaching of, of Jesus upon Peter's profession. Uh, and then <clears throat> I want us to together kind of consider uh, just how far apart Peter's view of the messianic work of Christ is was from um, Jesus's view uh, of his messianic work and, and, and think together through the rebuke that Peter gave and then the rebuke that Jesus turned around and gave. And so, but let me read just by way of reminder, starting with verse 27, and I'm going to read down through verse 33, then I'll pray, then we'll jump in. John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words. He says, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly or plainly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he, speaking of Christ, 
rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to just spend another week in your word here, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to honor you by thinking rightly about this scripture. Lord, that you would help me to articulate clearly things for us to see and savor in your word. And Lord, as always, we pray that you would continue to fashion us, conform us in Christ's likeness. So we're dependent on you. We're here to worship you. Help us to worship as we listen this morning. And I pray for those in the congregation, God, those who know you and have been saved by you, I pray you'd increase their faith, Lord. I pray for our children that through the preaching of the word that they might come to know you and trust you from a very early age. I pray for those who are attending here who might not know you, God, that you would in fact save them. And we trust you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this week, I found a a statement by uh, J.C. Ryle, if you're familiar with him. He was that bishop of of Liverpool in in the late 1800s, and I thought that it summarized last week's sermon well and helps to kind of spring us forward to consider it uh, even a bit more together this morning. But but Ryle said this about about this passage. He says, Christ and his gospel are just as little understood in reality and are the subject of as, uh, just as many different opinions as they were in Jesus' first advent. Many know the name of Christ. They acknowledge him as one who came in the world to save sinners even and regularly worship him in buildings set apart for his service. Few, though thoroughly, realize that he's very God, the one mediator, the one high priest, the only source of life and peace, their only shepherd, their only friend. Vague ideas about Christ are still very common. May we never rest until we can say of Christ, quote, my beloved is mine and I am his. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 16. This is saving knowledge. This is life eternal. So, you know, this morning we're going to We're going to savor that reality even more as we look at this plain teaching here in Mark chapter 8, particularly as it it relates to uh, Jesus' view of the Messiah, what it is that he came to do. And and this work, it was so counter to uh, uh, the expectations of the Jewish mind, right, that the Messiah would conquer through his own sacrifice, his own death, right? That's, that's a strange and, and seemingly backwards way to go about it. Yet, right, it's true. It's true, not just that he died, but that he really did accomplish God's plan of redemption in the very act. And if you're taking notes, and kids, if you have, if you have the, the worship guide to go along with your parents, this is the first thing I'd have you just jot down. And we're, we're going to spend a lot of time here this morning. It's this, the gospel, it reveals the triune God's plan from before time began. The gospel reveal, reveals the triune God's plan from before time 
began. Look back at Jesus' teaching in verses 31 and 32 following Peter's confession. If you're looking at it with me, you notice, right, there's no, there's no parable here. Right? Upon the Father, <clears throat> the Father in heaven revealing to the disciples, right, particularly to the apostles of Jesus, specifically to, to Peter, right, that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah, that he is the Christ, as we thought through last week, right, the Son of the living God, right, upon the Father revealing that, Jesus then prophesies. And, and kids, when I use that word prophecy, I mean truth-telling about the future, right? Jesus is, he's foretelling what he as the, as the Messiah had come to do. And he does so, like I said, he does so plainly. So follow with me here. Peter, he confesses Jesus as Christ, and Jesus says, you're exactly right, and you're blessed because the Father in heaven has revealed this to you, not, not flesh and blood. And, and the gates of hell won't prevail against that confession, right? And, and now that the dots have been connected, this is how I kind of think of it in my imagination, right? Jesus is saying, now that the dots are connecting for you by grace, let me tell you plainly how I, as the Messiah, will deliver my people, Right? That's what we see in Jesus' teaching. Again, pay attention to the language in verses 31 and 32. It says, And he, speaking of Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly, right? boldly, or, <clears throat> or plainly. Now, that word... In verse 31, that word must is significant. The Son of Man must suffer many things. It means that it's necessary. Actually, the root word, for this, the Greek that's translated in that, the root word of the Greek there, it means tie or bind. Now, why does Jesus, why does he speak of his ministry, his messianic work, in this particular way? Why is he saying that he the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected, that he must be killed, and after three days he must rise again. Well, to answer that question, let me read to you a couple of other passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to read you a section out of, out of chapter 7 of our confession. The first passage I want to take you to is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, the Apostle Paul, right, writing to Pastor Timothy and thus the church of Ephesus where he's pastoring. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according, get this, to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. We went over to another one of Paul's letters, Titus, chapter 1, the first two verses. Ah, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
promised before time began. Or if we flipped over to John's letter to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When we see those phrases before time began, we see those phrases from the foundation of the world, right? We should think of, of eternity past. Now, this is a hard thing to do. This is a hard thing to comprehend because we're finite, right? We, we have a beginning and we can't think past. We can't think earlier than our own beginning, not really, but before time began. In other words, before the word created in Genesis chapter one, right? Our God, who's all powerful and who's all knowing, And as for his own glory, he made a covenant to redeem a people to himself. And kids, when I use that word covenant, I mean a binding promise, a promise that can't be broken. And when we think about this covenant that I'm talking about, we should think of a a one-sided binding promise. God swears by his own name, to keep his own covenant, right? Who, who else what, Who else can swear by God's name, right? We just spent some time confessing the particulars of that, right, in, in the, the, the third commandment of, of the Ten Commandments. But this holy God who swears by himself is a covenant keeper. He's a covenant maker and he's a covenant keeper, right? But if this happens before time began, right, who, again, who else would have even made the covenant with? Right? This is before he, he created out of nothing. And this is the covenant that he made by himself, which has been clearly revealed to us in the gospel. But if we zoom out further than that, we see that the whole Bible tells us this story. Right? It, takes the, it takes the whole Bible to tell us about this covenant. Listen to how our Confession of Faith puts it, the London Confession of Faith in chapter 7, paragraph 3. It's, it's beautiful. It says this, The covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And then get this, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Now, what do we call this particular covenant? We can call it the covenant of grace. And that covenant, it it was made before time began. And and it was promised in the Old Testament upon the fall of Adam. And it was revealed more and more clearly by the temporal covenants that we see in the Old Testament, right? Think Noahic and Abrahamic and Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. Now, this covenant of grace that was promised 
and, and hoped for in the Old Testament. It's the covenant which saved those saints in the Old Testament by grace through faith. But it was accomplished in the new covenant. It was accomplished in the new covenant. And this is where we see it connected to our text in the gospel of Mark. This covenant that we're talking about was accomplished through the son of man suffering many things. It was accomplished through the son of man being rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, the religious people of the day. It was accomplished through the son of man being killed. And then after three days rising again. That's the significance behind Jesus saying that the Son of Man must. He must. This was was God's preordained plan to save His people. This was His preordained plan to redeem the actions of the first Adam in the garden who was a covenant breaker. Now, a few things that this means for us this morning. First, This should shape our view of God. This should shape our view of God. God's not some frantic, puny deity that's looking down at the decisions of man and and he's, he's hoping for the best. And when man sins, God is in reactionary mode and he puts a plan in place to redeem his creatures. That's not what the Bible teaches about God's character. That's not what the Bible teaches about God's plan to redeem his people, nor is it what the church has historically believed. Our God isn't, he's not taken by surprise. Right? He's, he's all-knowing. Our God's not bound by time. He's outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning, and Isaiah reminds us that all of his purposes will stand. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 10. Right? Our God, before he created the world, he covenanted to redeem a people to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he do this, you may ask? Right? That may be the burning question. Why? But why? The only answer that I can give you this morning, right? and, and we see this at the center of, of God's word, we see this at the center of God's world. The answer is this. He did it for his own glory. For his own glory. And, and this gets us to the second thing that I think, and it, it, it's related to shaping our thinking about who God is. And if our salvation is rooted in the glory of God, right, and, and our God will not be robbed of his glory, then we can have confidence that our salvation is secure because our God who does things for his glory is also an unchangeable God. He's unchangeable. In fact, that's the logic that the Apostle Paul uses in Titus, that Titus 1 passage I read to you a moment ago. He says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Right? Our glorious God, who, who can't tell a lie, in other words, He's unchangeable, He promised eternal life to his people before time began, before he even created the space and time in which creation occupies, which is hard to grasp, isn't it? If you're a Christian this morning, listen, you can can have assurance of your salvation. And I hope you can connect these dots here. 
Are you going to have assurance of your salvation? And I know that there's some of you dear saints that struggle with that. But listen, you don't, you don't have to live in that torturous state of mind. Now, I, unrepentant sin, right? That clouds our assurance because an unclean conscience robs us of our joy and hope in Jesus, right? That's why God has given us these gifts of confession and, and repentance. But listen, your salvation, it's not based on you. It isn't based on your righteousness. It's not based on your ability to keep your salvation. It's not based in you being sinless, right? If your salvation was based on any of that, you could never have assurance, right? Because unlike God, you and I are changeable, right? We're fickle. We're sinful. But thankfully, your salvation, my salvation... It's based on the triune God alone who promised your salvation before time began and who accomplished your salvation in my salvation with no help from us, right? He accomplished it solely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the second thing we should see this morning as it relates to this preordained plan of God as it relates to our, our, our salvation, but let's consider one more thing as it relates to this. And, and some of you may already be thinking about this. But we see in the preordained plan of God, right? Or the, we see in the, 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 the preordained suffering of Jesus. That the sufferings inflicted by others are used for eternal good. They're used for eternal good. It isn't that suffering is good. Right? Suffering exists because of the fall. Suffering will be done away with when Jesus returns. But it's good that suffering exists only because God accomplishes good, both seen and unseen, from it. Right? So, so, so try to wrap your mind around this with me for a moment. Right? Before the incarnation of Jesus, Isaiah, he prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord, and I think we have, yeah. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who does that make you think of as we read that prophecy prior to the incarnation? Everybody's scared to answer. It's about Christ, right? And we have every reason to believe that, right? We see that that's how Jesus even taught us to read and think through the Old Testament. Right? But according to the Holy Scripture, it was pleasing to the Lord for Christ to be put to grief. Why? Why? Well, because in His humanity... He became an offering for sin. Whose sin? Our sin. Our sin. And what did that accomplish exactly? Him becoming an offering for our sin. Well, Isaiah prophesied that it was prosperous. And we see just five verses earlier in that same chapter I just read to you, Isaiah chapter 53, just again, five verses earlier, he says this. That he, again prophesying about Christ prior to the incarnation, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by his wounds, some of your translations say, we are healed. And so Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he foretold, he told the truth about the future, right? because the Spirit was inspiring him. Right? But he foretold that the death of Christ would bring us peace. Peace between primarily us and God. This chasm that was made because of our sin. Right? Isaiah said that the wounds of Christ would heal us. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. Now, what of those who wickedly participated in God's preordained plan to save his people and the suffering part? That may be a question that some of us are asking this morning. Well, the Lord held those accountable who crucified Jesus. Right? We, we need to think of them as, as secondary causes, as, as, as free agents according to their nature, but free agents to God's overarching providential plan to redeem a people to himself. But look at how Peter preaches. Right? This same Peter that we'll get to in a moment was being rebuked by Jesus because he didn't like Jesus' plain teaching, Jesus' interpretation of what he as the Messiah would do. We see Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 39, he says this to, to those who were in company that participated in some way in the crucifixion of Jesus. Right? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, right? whom you crucified, right? both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Right, when we see these passages right, taken together, they're, they're, they are twin truths. They're twin truths. God is absolutely sovereign, and man is personally responsible for his actions. Charles Spurgeon said when he was asked to reconcile these two things that we're trying to think through together, he, he, he was asked to reconcile these truths, and he replied this. He said, I would never try. I never, I never reconcile friends, is what he said. J.I. Packer, another theologian, he said this, right, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They're friends and they work together. Now, how all the inner workings of that line up, I don't know. I don't know. But we see it here, and by faith we must believe it, we must proclaim it, we must hold on to it. So we see this morning, Jesus, I, he, he's preaching the Christian gospel, which is what reveals God's eternal covenant, covenant made before all time, right? We see that Jesus did in fact come that his people might be saved, and 
the way in which he did that, he suffered and he died according to the will of God. And in his suffering and his death, he, he took our sins upon himself and he, he received what we deserved, what I deserved, what you deserve, which is the wrath and judgment of God. It's been said that, that the cross is the place where justice and mercy meet, right? It's the place where we see both the love and the wrath of God. And who received the wrath of God for our sins, right? It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. And in this grand unfair exchange, we receive the wage that he alone earned, right? We receive the right, and Scott's already, he, he's, he's prayed this a couple, he said this a couple of times already this morning, but we receive the right to be called sons and daughters, and the evidence that Christ, in fact, accomplished this, the evidence that the Father is well-pleased with the Son and thus, thus well-pleased with those, all those who find refuge in Christ alone is the empty tomb that Jesus preaches about in this passage, this empty tomb that Jesus prophesies about in this passage. He says, after three days, rise. After three days, rise. Right? Paul says in Romans Chapter 4, verse 25, he says that he resurrected, that Christ resurrected for our justification. And this, is the, this is the message of the gospel. We hear it every single week as we gather together. The question is, are you, are you resting in it? Are you resting in it this morning? Next thing you can jot down if you're taking notes is this. Worldly thinking comes from the father of lies. Worldly thinking comes from the father of lies. Now, it's clear to us from our text that Peter and seemingly the rest of the apostles' expectations for the Messiah, it, it didn't match God's eternal plan. Right? It didn't match the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. It didn't match that it pleased the Lord to bruise the Son, Isaiah 53, 10. It didn't match that He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. And it didn't match because Peter's thinking about what the Messiah should be, it came not from God, like his confession that Jesus is the Christ did, but rather it came from Satan. His thinking about it came from Satan. And maybe that seems extreme or harsh to, to say this morning, but it isn't because it's the very thing that Jesus said. All right, look back at the text with me and we'll flesh it out a bit more. Right, Starting verse 31, he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside, here we go, and began to rebuke him. Peter understood what he was saying. He didn't agree with it. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. Try to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. And it, and it shouldn't be hard unless we're just really deceived by our own self-righteousness, right? <clears throat> but Peter had, 
he had different expectations for the Messiah. And these expectations, they, they weren't uncommon in Jewish thought. If Jesus is the Messiah, then certainly he came to conquer in the same way that we visualize conquering, right? Sword in hand, right? His enemies underfoot, right? Not, not suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders, and then be killed. It doesn't seem right, right? That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do and be. And in this way, Peter, he's rejecting Jesus's interpretation of what the Messiah was to come and do, right? He should rule and reign in a political way now, not be killed. Be killed? We've waited so long. Now, a few things about this, and, and Raul was helpful to me in pointing some of these things out. First, we note, I note the ignorance of Peter. Right? Peter, he's ignorant, right? His view of the Messiah and what Jesus teaches about himself, it's so far apart. It, it, it's so far. It, it couldn't be further apart, actually, right? Political rule and reign, no, I'm going to be rejected and killed. Right? It doesn't get further apart than that, does it? We also see in this, at least I, I think we see, because we know a little bit about the nature of Peter and Jesus' relationship, but we see even good intentions here. So not just the ignorance, but we also see Peter probably had good intentions. Like I think back to our earlier journey when uh, Jesus' mom and his siblings were um, waiting outside for him. He, he, if you remember back, he's... He's, he's teaching, some people come in and they say, your mom, you know, your, your mom and your brothers are, are, out, are outside. And, uh, and he asks, who, who is my mother? You know, who are my, who's my mother? Who's my brothers, right? And, and, and I think what we were seeing there was this attempt to intervene with the best of intentions. Man, he's, he's working a lot. He needs to rest. We need to come and take him and make sure that he rests, um, right? Good intentions, but getting in the way of the messianic work of Jesus. And I think we see that a little bit here with, with Peter, right? Peter, Peter had just confessed Jesus as Christ, even though many people in the religious community of that time, again, you see the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes that would eventually lead the charge in crucifying Jesus, right? Even at this time, they were against Jesus. He had already had several confrontations with them at this point. So he was not the approved narrative, Right, his his ministry, his his uh, the things he was saying. Right, he he was canceled, if you will, even at this stage of the game. Right, and Peter, he didn't want Jesus to die. Right, last week I mentioned Peter cutting off the ear of one of the men who came to take Jesus in the middle of the night. Right, this kind of unauthorized arrest. You see that in John chapter eighteen. Right, Peter even then was still not the messianic work of Jesus or the nature of his messianic work just was not sinking in even then, right? He was going to inter interrupt it. Good intentions, but way off base. We also see, right, Peter, he demonstrates in all of this as we're kind of observing it, a particular 
a dangerous train of thought. And it's this. I know what the Messiah should be and do better than Jesus. I can imagine Peter thinking in light of Jesus' clear teaching. Just again, this, this isn't how we win. This isn't how we win. We've got a lot of momentum going. You're feeding people. You're healing people. The masses are coming. Certainly, we're just going to put a crown on your head. There's nowhere to go. You know, we're, we're on the rise with the multitude. We'll conquer the opposition of, and the, 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 the people that are, that, that are trying to squash this narrative. We'll, we'll, we'll conquer them through this multitude that just keeps coming out. I think he's, from a worldly perspective, seems to have a point. This isn't how we win. This isn't how we're delivered by the Messiah. This isn't how things are set right. This doesn't make any sense. All right, why would the Messiah suffer and die if the Messiah is supposed to usher in the kingdom of God and trample God's enemies? Now, isn't this the way of thinking so often for us? Right, when our plans don't line up with the will of God. All right, we can be so angry about that. Instead of living open-handedly before the Lord, instead of knowing that God's will and His plan and His purpose for us is best and that it accomplishes our best, we instead think that we see things clearly, which we don't, right? And our anger that we carry with us so often and our discontentments that we carry with us so often and our sense of entitlement that we carry with us so often is evidence of all of this, right? Our pride, our arrogance is evidence of all of this. So Peter, who thinks he knows better than Christ, he, vocal, he vocalizes that, right? He actually begins to rebuke Jesus and, and probably speaks for the rest of the disciples when he does. And that word for rebuke in our text is actually used, normally used in relation to rebuking demons, Again, it's evidence for us of just how different Peter's vision for the Messiah is to that of of God's eternal plan. One commentator says this, that Peter's rebuke unknowingly is in opposition to the essential design of the incarnation. Peter was opposing God's plan to deliver his people. But as Peter begins to rebuke Jesus... What do we see instead? Right? Instead, we see Jesus rebuke Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Those are strong words, aren't they? Shocking words. Yet, Jesus uses those words because he loves Peter. He uses those words because he loves the apostles. And in his love, he sought to expose their thinking or expose, again, at least Peter's thinking as being anti-Christ, as being satanic, right? Peter, best case scenario, would be well-intentioned and wrong, but his thinking is dangerous, was dangerous, and it was enslaving, right? His particular version of what the Messiah should be and do, it would actually leave men in their sins, right? It would actually thwart the redemptive purposes of God. Right? While Peter is accusing Jesus as plain teaching about how the Messiah is to redeem his people as demonic, Jesus shows Peter that 
He's opposing God by standing in the way and that he, in fact, is the one with the satanic view of the Messiah. Right? Satan would use even a Christian to thwart the plan and purpose of God. Yet it didn't do that. It didn't thwart God's eternal plan. And through the faithful shepherding of Jesus, Peter, along with the rest of his disciples, they came to, to see that clearly. Going back to a sermon of Peter I mentioned earlier, okay, not, not long after the ascension of Jesus, Peter, using Psalm 16 as his text to prove that Jesus came and accomplished exactly what the Messiah was supposed to come, and accomplish. He, he speaks these words of life. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible, not possible, that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, for David says, and before the incarnation, right? So he goes and he goes back to Psalm 16. He says, David says this about Jesus before the incarnation of Jesus. Quote, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand that I might, may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence, right? And we see that fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. That should fill us with hope. That should fill us with confidence, right? As we look back, knowing that Jesus actually accomplished God's plan to redeem a people for himself. And guess what? He's commissioned us as his church to be salt and light, right? To proclaim the gospel of God. And that is his means, his only means by which he builds his church, right? Word, prayer, sacrament, word, prayer, sacrament. I know I, I bring it back to that quite often, but listen, Peter was discontent with Jesus's view, his messianic work, God's plan to save the nations. And we so often on this side of the first advent, as we await for the second advent of Christ, we want to get creative and we have our own ideas about how it is that God's going to build his church and what we should do in order to accomplish that when in reality, our God who has ordained our salvation, our God who has accomplished our salvation in Jesus Christ has also ordained the means by which he builds his church. And we must rest in that. We must be content in that and have faith in the God who accomplishes his plan and his purposes through those particular means. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we praise you. God, we thank you for this plan before all time. God, that the saints of old look forward to, 
and were saved by. God, that those in the new covenant were witnesses to and that we look back on in faith and confidence that we are saved by. And we thank you that that plan of salvation is grounded in your unchangeable character and that it brings you glory. Because of that, we know that we are receiving an imperishable inheritance. Thank you. And Lord, we trust in you. Help our unbelief. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.